0: Hear the word of the Lord. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now, Simon's mother in law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. So Jesus healed many people who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons. But because the demons knew who he was, he did not allow them to speak. Before daybreak the next morning, Jesus got up and went out to an isolated place to pray. Later, Simon and the others went to find him. When they found him, they said, Everyone is looking for you. But Jesus replied, We must go on to other towns as well, and I will preach to them too. That is why I came. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You may be seated. Well, good morning, church. Peace be with you. Thanks. Good to see you. Uh, My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors, and I'm personally a little excited about uh, this Sunday. I've been looking forward to it for a while. We are at our annual State of the Communion Address which uh, happens to be, we entered a contest, the cleverest sermon series title in the United States. Thank you very much. Uh, But it's it's also fun for me, if you're like, what's clever about that? Just ask somebody that looks like they vote, and they'll explain it to you. Um, But it's, yeah, someone got that a little late. Uh, uh, It's a time where we take, we've been doing it for a couple years now, where we take a few weeks to try to say, how are we doing as a church? Uh, what are signs of God's grace and where might God be leading us this next year? And so it's, it's fun for me because you know, we get so uh, into the rhythms of life that it can be difficult to step back and try to consider on a large scale, what is God doing? What are we doing here? What is God up to in our midst and, and where might we go in the future? And originally I had just anticipated that today would be kind of storytelling Sunday and we'd share all these great stories and stuff that's happened and like rah-rah encourage everybody. Uh, But as I started going through it, uh, there's just frankly too much to say. And I didn't really want to do another announcement Sunday. We do about one or two of those a year where it's like we're doing this and this, which is fine. It's just really boring to preach those sermons. And uh, so we're not going to do that. Uh, We're going to do a couple of highlights In list form, I'm just going to flash them up on the screen. And now, as these are coming up, these are just the new things that we've started this year. These are new evidences of life. Uh, This isn't the normal rhythms of things. I just want to point out a couple of them. Uh, So Schools of Spiritual Formation, that's for men and women, where we're learning kind of the rhythms of deep transformation, trying to cultivate the real presence of Jesus in our life. Uh, And and with that, we've started women's ministry a year ago. And you're like, really? Five years in, just getting to it. We're doing the best we can, but we got it started. And it's been by far the highest attended thing that we've ever done in our history. Go down a little bit, uh, Fresh Stop Market, which is uh, a way that our church is partnering with an organization called New Roots to provide Organic, healthy, locally grown food to folks in the neighborhood. And I'm not, I don't know if you know this, but we are the largest uh, farmer's market, fresh stock market in the entire Louisville region. And half of the people who are coming are on support. They're they're receiving financial aid from the other folks buying it so that they can get afford food they wouldn't otherwise be able to afford. And I get real excited about this partially because I had nothing to do with it. It wasn't my idea. I don't help take, pull it off, uh, which is fun when there's something like that. And, but but also think about what, is, what what, What that represents for a second. Our church is a place, and we're partnering together to provide food for people who otherwise wouldn't have access to this kind of quality of food. If if you live in this neighborhood, the, the closest grocery store to you is the Dollar General on Vincennes. And that's not exactly a hotbed of like healthy organic produce. Uh, and so that's a way that our church is partnering to actually be the kingdom of God. You know, people aren't hungry in the kingdom of God, and there's healthy food in the kingdom of God. Uh, it's it's really exciting. The, the Renters' Rights Seminar, something we did about a year ago, uh, helping people, educating folks. What are your rights when you're renting property in town? What is a landlord allowed to do, and what is he not allowed to do? Uh, we had lawyers come in. It was free. We helped people with resumes, uh, getting jobs, all, all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, obviously, we've got the building renovations. We set out to raise $150,000, and we're we're just a hair short of $300,000, and it's almost done. <laughs> when will it be done? Soon. How soon? I don't really know. Uh, but but you can see our new entryway has steel around it outside now, and we've got a roof over there. We've got uh, drywall happening, and the holes where the toilets are going to go are in. So it's really exciting. Um, we're excited to test drive those here pretty soon. Um, and then The bottom there, special needs buddies, Uh, we've seen this increase. There's been revival breaking out over at Sojourn Kids. We've stopped really tracking uh, record attendance Sundays because next week it'll be even greater. Uh, But we've seen a lot of um, young folks with special needs come up that maybe there wasn't space for them at other churches. And we've just raised up a team of volunteers, someone with a heart for kids uh, like that, has led a team, and so when you come, there's a place now. If you've got the very special needs, and a buddy that will come walk alongside you, uh, and so again, th- this just isn't this isn't everything. This is just the new stuff um, where we've seen. Signs of life pop up over the last year, uh, and additionally, we, we've kept doing the things that we've always been doing, like our quarterly events in the neighborhood, like Back to School Bash, where we serve folks, give them free uh, school supplies. Uh, we've kept pressing into relationships with one another. We've walked with each other through loss and through death and through suffering uh, to find what is Jesus up to in this um, this is the second year in a row we've ended with a giving surplus in our budget, which for a church plant is a big deal. <laughs> like we've kind of grown up and we're out of that church plant phase now. Uh, we've seen significant growth in our Sunday attendance, uh, which isn't the only thing to pay attention to, but it's, in, it's encouraging to pay attention to. And, and maybe most of all, uh, what kind of gets my juices going is we, we've seen people come to Christ. Uh, we've seen people give their life to Jesus and move from death to life. Uh, And I wanted to share a couple, if if you've never been, if you're visiting with us, when someone gets baptized, we take a few minutes and let them share their story, kind of how they came here, what's Jesus done in their life. And I want you to listen. This is just a couple of highlights. i got three of them, of folks, some stuff that people said in their baptism testimonies over this last year. First, Jesus saved me from a life of pride, hedonism really, and has allowed me to be a woman in service to him. Growing up, I always knew of God, but I never really knew him. I truly cannot thank Sojourn for helping to teach me what it means to be a Christian. I soon realized I did not know how to be a follower of Christ. Going to Sojourn opened my eyes to what a personal relationship with Jesus can look like. These are stories emerging from our midst of God showing up and revealing himself to people and real human beings with real lives and stories and families saying, no, I'm going to change the course of my life and I'm going to follow Jesus now. Uh, and and when I step back, I, Honestly, you guys, I'm, sure, I'm not sure what else we could expect or long for as a church to see all of this new life happening all around us. And it makes me feel what I imagine the people here in Mark chapter one felt like as, as Jesus comes in. And first, you know, there's a certain amount of love you got to have for your mother-in-law to go talk to Jesus and say, hey, can you come heal her? That's usually a strained relationship, right? Not with everybody, just with most everybody, uh, He could have just let it roll, right? Like, let's just let Jesus pass by and see what happens to mom. But no, he says, no, Jesus, come. You know what I'm saying? Come on, that's funny. Everybody struggles with their mother-in-law, right? Good grief, people. Uh, And so Jesus heals this woman, which is amazing. And I love how it says, then she prepared a meal for them afterwards. Like, get back to work, mom, right? Like, no rest for a mom. Uh, But what was that conversation around the table like? You know, I was just about to die, and then Jesus came. And then what happens after that? A whole town of people come, and demons get cast out. Uh, More sick people get healed. Like, can you imagine the excitement and and anticipation of being around Jesus? Man, what's he going to do tomorrow? What's going to happen next? And, you know, for me, I I really struggle with doubt and and insecurity. And when there's times where it's like, man, what are we doing here? Is this a good idea? What's happening? Like, if I can just step back and look at our church, it's like, you guys and what's happening here, it's all the evidence I need that God is real. And I'm filled with this expectation of what's going to happen next. And I want to point out that all the cool stuff that happened around Jesus in Mark chapter one, they wrote it down, right? It's recorded. It's here in your Bible. You can go home and read it. So these are things worth remembering. We want to remember all of the stuff that happened this last year. Every time we walk in the new entrance, we want to remember the summer that we spent walking down the trash alley to come in and walking across the parking lot to have to go to the bathroom because something beautiful was happening here. We want to remember these things. Uh, But what's fascinating to me is, is do you notice, as Meg read that story for us, did you notice who didn't seem all that enamored by the events? Who didn't seem all that interested in the miraculous things happening? To me, it seemed like Jesus was the least interested person in what was going on in terms of the supernatural, miraculous stuff. Uh, It's interesting when you think about the context. Jesus has just spent a chunk of time in his temptation in the desert. So he he was hungry, he was thirsty, he was lonely, and then ultimately he was assailed by Satan. He was tempted to fall. And, And Jesus, in a short period of time, goes from hunger, deprivation, temptation to now here being a local celebrity the whole town comes out to see him people from surrounding towns he, he starts getting this reputation and what does jesus do he goes essentially the opposite direction of the crowds uh, the crowds come and get excited and, and then jesus literally hides in the woods what did he know why would he do something like this well, a long time ago, a long time before that, uh, Israel, the people of God, they were in the desert too. They had just left generations of slavery in Egypt, and they were entering into the promised land, uh, this, this place that God had promised they would receive that was abundant in food. They would be free. They would be safe. So Israel is trading hunger for plenty. They're trading slavery for freedom. They're trading deprivation for abundance. They're going into a whole new world, right? Everything is about to change. And the first chunk of Deuteronomy is God preparing them for this new life. Here's what to expect as you come into this new life. And listen to the warning that that they're given in Deuteronomy chapter eight. Beware that in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, be careful do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Essentially, this text says there's a danger in abundance. There's a a risk that comes when things are going well, and it's a risk Jesus would have been well acquainted with because he was well acquainted with the Bible. Think about What's lurking when everything is supposedly or apparently going well? There's, there's the danger of comfort. know this is really nice. Why don't we just stay here? You ever known a church that experienced something like that? This is great. Let's not change a thing. We're going to keep doing exactly what we did this last year, and we're just going to stay here. Or like the disciples to Jesus and the prophets. Hey, let's just build a tent and live up on the mountain the rest of our life. We can just stay here. There's the danger of pride. Everything is nice because either we deserve it to be nice. We're so wonderful and special and great that of course God would do this for us and to us. Or there's the danger and pride of thinking that this is because of how great we are. Look at all that we have done. Look at how many people come to our church and look at how many ways we serve the community and look at all this thing that we're so wonderful, we're so smart, we're so talented. And, And Deuteronomy draws out what, What's at the core of both of these kind of the comfort and pride temptations is essentially uh, the the great danger when things are going well is that we can forget the Lord our God who rescued us. So to, to be made in the image of God is in some ways to have infinity placed in your souls. Like we all have this longing for more, more life, more love more joy, because we're made to be like God. God holds everything. He's present everywhere. Everything is before him. And so there's this hunger for the infinite that's put in every human being's soul. And that's meant to be satisfied in God. We want more of everything because ultimately we want God. When we've forgotten God, though, that longing turns into just a twisted hunger for more. And it's never enough. So... How does that play out when things are going well? I I can remember a few years ago when our Sunday attendance was at 350 people and my big holy prayer was, Lord, please make people stop leaving our church because a lot of people were leaving. And shortly after that, maybe six months or so, we had about 400 people coming. And so I was like, man, praise God, very holy prayers. And I can remember then I started praying, Lord, if we... If we could just get to 450 people, we could do so much more for your kingdom. A short while after that, we got to 500. And I was like, ooh, God, 500 is good. Can you imagine what would happen if we hit 550? And, and shortly after that, uh, we, hit, we hit around 600. Uh, a few weeks ago, we, we, I don't remember the exact number. Bobby can tell you. I get, I get an email every Sunday night with our stats, and a few weeks ago, it was 660-something. And I kid you not, the first thought that hit me when I saw that number was, that is so close to 700. Because once we hit 700, I don't really know what. Uh, we'll be a little bit closer to 750, right? Like, and I, I did that dance at one of our other churches, the Midtown campus. I did that dance from about 700 to 1,700. And you know what? You know what you're praying or thinking or scheming about when you're at 1,700 people as a church? We are so close to 2,000. Just a little bit, a little bit more. It's never enough. When when we've forgotten God, this big hole in our soul, it turns into a hunger where it's always got to be more. It's got to be bigger. It's got to be flashier. It's got to be more sensational. And, And this. Uh, This symptom of, I don't know if you want to call it godlessness or just our own forgetfulness, it's compounded by a family history that almost all of us have inherited. Unless this is your very first time in a Protestant church, any kind, so maybe you grew up Catholic. Uh, If this is your first time ever being in like a non Catholic church, maybe you're exempt from this. But if you're American and you've been to church at least once, Uh, You have this family history that very few of us are aware of. Uh, So it's history time. You didn't know you were getting a history lesson today? I'm going to give you some history right now. In 1792, a long time ago, a man named Charles Finney was born in a small Connecticut town. Where are you at, Chuck? Look at this man. Now, I encourage you, don't look directly into his eyes. (laughs) He's like Vigo from Ghostbusters 2. He might steal your soul if you look too close. Can you believe he had to live with that face every day? So intense. So there's Charles Finney. Uh, and he was, you know, arguably one of the first or maybe just the biggest early American Christian celebrity. Uh, this has been a deal for a long time, celebrity Christians. It's not, it's not necessarily a new thing. Uh, he became famous. Just leave that up there for a second so we can all stay uncomfortable with him staring at us. We <laughs> just feel like he's judging you. Uh, Finney became famous for these innovative church growth techniques, um, these innovative new methods for getting people to come to Christ. Uh, Let's see if any of these sound familiar. He was the first man, the first person uh, to hold what became known as the outdoor tent meeting. The local churches didn't like what he was doing, so he said, I'm not going to go to church anymore. I'm going to put a big tent up in the town square. Everybody can come listen to me do my tent meeting. That became followed up by maybe his uh, most famous technique. Let me know if you've ever heard of it. He invented what's called the altar call. Uh, he had a section of his church called, or his meetings called the anxious bench. And that's where if you were someone who was really uncertain about Jesus or you were really close, you sat in this one spot and he would just come and he would just work you and work you and work you. And then at the end, you'd have this altar call where you make this moment decision decision to come in and, as he put it, give in to Jesus. He was a master of manipulating emotions. And the the idea of, uh, if you've ever heard this phrase or said this phrase, this is where it comes from, Uh, the idea of accepting Christ or making a decision for Jesus, all of that is from Charles Finney. Uh, If you've ever felt the pressure to know precisely when you converted, or you've dealt with all this insecurity and anxiety because you don't know precisely the day, the moment, and the hour when you converted that stems from Charles Finney. His movement became known known as revivalism, and it it was purely about technique. Uh, This is Finney's own words. He says, conversion is not a miracle or dependent on a miracle in any sense. It is purely a philosophical result of the right use of the constituted means. It's like a $10 sentence. What he's saying is if you, if you say the right things in the right way, people will become Christians. So it's just a matter of let's get everybody here, let's say the right things, let's do the show, let's work the anxious bench, make these people make decisions, and then we can move on to the next town and do it over again. His, his movement in many ways was fueled by uh, this famous slogan of a Baptist preacher in England, on the other side of the ocean, where uh, this guy he said, and this gave way to the modern missions movement in a lot of ways. This Baptist preacher in England said, "Do great things for God, and expect great things from God." And so Finney's revivals became to be about highly emotional experiences with dramatic results. We're going to do something great for God, and expect something great from God. So if you if you want to see God, or if you're looking for evidence that God is there, it's always tied to greatness. And the the spin Finney put on that was that meant high emotions, high results, something dramatic, something intense, something big and sensational had to be happening. So if you've ever wondered, you know, like, why don't pastors of small churches get books published? Or, or if you've ever wondered why you feel like your story of coming to Jesus is so boring. Uh, If you've ever felt uh, inadequate or you've doubted God's love for you because your life feels so just normal. Uh, If you've ever chased the on fire for Jesus feeling or if you're frustrated because it feels like you're growing so slowly. If you can't rejoice in small everyday signs of God's grace, all of this traces back to Charles Finney and revivalism. Now, I'm not trying to say everything about revivalism was wrong or that Finney wasn't a Christian, um, but I do want us to consider some of this stuff where you... See, it, you don't really see Christian books titled things like How to Live a Pretty Average Life and Do Your Job. You know? Isn't that interesting? The 15 ways to change the world and take over the everything for Jesus. You, you don't really hear a podcast about the guy who's was like, man, I felt the Lord called me to be a bivocational preacher and plant a church in a small town and faithfully help about 30, 80-year-olds die over the next century or next decade. Like God's really raised me up to be a faithful dad and do a job I don't really like to be a blessing to my community and a healthy member of my local church. Like, no, we've gotta be radical or we've gotta be great or we've gotta change the world for Jesus. And and contrast this with what we see in Jesus himself from Mark chapter one. Something great happened, right? Something amazing, something sensational. It's, It's worth writing down. It's worth remembering. But how does it strike you that Jesus avoided the crowd? He didn't stick around for autographs. He didn't stick around to counsel people with these heavy weighty decisions in their lives or to take selfies or whatever. Did you see the disciples had to go looking for him? It wasn't like he was tired and he just decided to sleep in and the disciples had to wake him up at his door. Jesus woke up before everybody else, went out to the woods and they had to go on a manhunt for him. And then they find him and they're they're ringing their hands, Jesus, everybody is looking for you. And, And can you imagine some of the things they might've been saying? Revival's breaking out, Jesus. <laughs> everybody's here. We're going to be a mega church by the end of the afternoon if you just do your thing one more time. And what does Jesus say to them? He says, we must go on to other towns as well. And I will preach to them too. That is why I came. So not only, <laughs> just put yourself there for a second. Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And he says, let's go somewhere else. Not only is Jesus uninterested in the crowds, do you see how uninterested uninterested he is in the miracles as well? He didn't say, we got to go somewhere else so I can heal those people. We got to go somewhere else because I got more demons to mess with. He said, I'm going to go somewhere else. I'm going to preach to them too. He's not doing miracles. He's doing something far more ordinary. I mean, never, as far as I can tell, has there been a miracle worker or a celebrity who is less interested in the crowds, less interested in performing than Jesus of Nazareth. He seemed to be far more interested in slow conversations, on long walks and drawn out meals than he was on healing the sick or casting out demons. Go read your Bibles and see how Jesus responds to the miracles. Y'all just came back because I gave you a lot of food yesterday. You're only back because you're hungry. Man comes asking Jesus for his son to be healed, and Jesus says, Will you people never believe unless I give you signs and wonders? Looks at a man laying in a mat. He says, Your sins are forgiven. And everyone's like, But come on, Jesus. For Jesus, revival wasn't about some intense, sensational, emotional decision. Re- revival was about people returning to relationship with God, reorienting all of our lives around God his commands and the invitation we have to know him and be known by him. So what what might that mean for us as a church, especially in light of a year that's worth remembering? And there's lots of stories we could record and and write down. What what might be God trying to invite us into as a church in in light of this passage and, and Jesus's preference for just ordinary life? The first thing that comes to mind for me is that uh, I think God's trying to remind us that Christianity is an everyday religion. It's a relationship that happens day in and day out. Try to imagine if Charles Finney had been a marriage counselor instead of a preacher. I think a lot of our marriages would look something like this. Like we spend 48 weeks of the year feeling guilty and disconnected from each other because we live in separate houses, we don't talk very much, we occasionally send text messages with big promises, and then four times a year we go on strategic vacations, and we renew our vows every year, and we get that intense in love feeling again, and then we call that marriage. I became a Christian at a summer camp, and I spent about the next 10 years wishing I could live at summer camp chasing that feeling, that high. The problem, there's lots of problems there, but one of the big ones is that real relationships happen in the trenches. They happen in the day-to-day rhythms of normal life. The, the best marriages aren't so much a raging bonfire as they are just, just kind of a, a slow-burning stove where there's a consistent heat that, that lasts a long time. Why is it that when we see a couple in their 80s, Bob Evans or whatever, sitting there quietly holding hands, that there's something in us that's like, I want that. Something that just looks so beautiful about a couple that's comfortable enough with one another that it's okay if they don't talk. And then you see the 28-year-olds who are married panicking because there's silence for seven seconds, right? Christianity is not about a climactic emotional decision it's about learning the everyday rhythms of life with Jesus over a long period of time. It's seeing and experiencing God in the everyday. And uh, that might sound good. Experientially, I don't know very many people that are comfortable with this because we have, a, a I guess, a fundamental misunderstanding of what the goal of our Christian life is. That phrase from the, the Baptist preacher in England, which ironically was preached at a little tiny church and no one remembers his name. He's just referenced as quoting it. Uh, that do great things for God, expect great things from God, has kind of swirled around in our minds to make us think the goal of the Christian life is doing great things for God. I just don't see that in the Bible. The, The goal, as far as we can tell, and what we're trying to be as a church, the goal of the Christian life is knowing God and being known by him. It's a relational goal. Think about how confusing it would be if God was like, I'm gonna make the whole universe by speaking, and then make this tiny little speck of a planet, and I'm gonna fill it with so much stuff to do that I'm gonna have to create humans to do it for me because I can't handle it on my own. And if they don't do something great for me, the whole thing is gonna fall apart. The goal of the Christian life isn't so much doing something great for God, but rather becoming someone great in God, knowing him and becoming deep souls that have been transformed by him. If we keep remaining addicted to the bigger and the flashier and the more, we will burn out. Finney's ministry was centralized, located in a certain part of New York, and to this day, the The area, the neighborhood where his ministry was based is called the Burned Over District. And you can find newspaper clippings where they they call it that because it had been so scorched by religious fervor that it could no longer bear fruit. The emotionalism, the intensity, the highs over and over, it just ground the place into dust. And if this is us, we can't look at last year and rejoice and be overwhelmed with gratitude and use it as evidence that God is really with us. And he was here when we were suffering. He was here when we were rejoicing. He keeps showing up for us. We we won't be able to see it that way because all that matters is doing something bigger and better and more next year. But imagine if our goal became knowing God and being like him. What if the more that we hungered for wasn't, like God help us, it wasn't attendance or it wasn't getting busier and doing more stuff or finding some way to get notoriety and being known as the cool church that's doing all these amazing things. What if that wasn't what we were hungering for, but instead we were hungering for God himself? If we waited for God and we longed for God and prayed that he would draw us near to him, can you imagine how much our joy would increase in journeying with God every day? Can you imagine how much less time we would spend assessing the results of our life and comparing them with everyone else's? The word that comes to mind um, that I want us to embrace and come to love as the church is the word ordinary. If, If our goal is doing something great for God, God will only be found in the great places the places that are splashy or noteworthy. And the real danger there is that they're never enough. The Bible is filled with stories about people longing for a miracle, receiving a miracle, and then continuing to live in doubt and faithlessness. No one saw more miracles in such a condensed period of time as the people of God leaving Egypt. And it was a couple of days before they were rebelling against God. Faith, our our journey with Christ, is not sustained by miraculous. And have you ever noticed how most of your life is just pretty ordinary? It's just pretty normal? That word normal is called that for a reason, because this is what happens to almost everybody. And even in Jesus' life, even in his ministry, most of it was so profoundly ordinary. You ever frustrated why we don't get more information about the first 30 years of Jesus' life? Why all these people make all kinds of money writing books, speculating about what Jesus did in those first 30 years of his life? The reason we don't have more information about it is because it's very, very boring. What did he do? Well, there's a couple things we know. Uh, We know he went to church a lot. Uh, We know that he had to learn how to be obedient. We know that he had to grow up physically, which meant Jesus went through puberty. I'm glad that's not in there. And he had to grow in wisdom. He had to grow in his reputation with folks. What, how do you do that? Well, you, you get up, you go to your job, and you work your job, and you come home, and you have dinner, and clean up after yourself, and then you go to bed. And you do that for about 20 years. That's what Jesus was doing. In other words, he was living a very normal, ordinary life. He was fully human. He was tempted in every way. He was just without sin, which meant he felt temptation walk into work and someone caught his eye, but he didn't give in to that temptation. Everything that you've gone through and all of your temptations, he did that in the context of an ordinary life, and he remained sinless and perfect and beautiful. If the goal is knowing God, if the earth and everything in it is the Lord's, then we, like Jesus, can see that God is in all of the mundane, ordinary places. We don't have to go to some extreme high to experience God. Or as God says to his prophet, I will not be in the earthquake. I will not be in the raging fire or the wind. I will be in the still, soft voice whispering to you. Nothing remarkable, nothing flashy. That's where you will find me. Here's what this looks like, like boots meets the ground. I don't know, I'm not counting everyone here and who has a cup or not. Most of you came in and had a cup of coffee. Amen. You know, it's world-class coffee. Someone roasted it over in Louisville. It's legitimately some of the best coffee in the world. And it was free because our members bought it for you. Thanks be to God. It was delicious, right? I love coffee. It's evidence of God's grace. You know that somebody, a couple of people have gotten here right around 7 a.m. for over a year now to make that coffee for you. that there's coffee in the nursing mom's room in case you need to go in there with your little one during the service. There's coffee for the kids' workers that are coming in to invest in our kids and teach them about Jesus. And how many of you, as you were sitting there, pulling the spigot, whatever that thing's called, to pour the black eye of truth into your cup, sat there and took a moment and said, Lord, thank you for these people who made this coffee for me. Like, I... (laughs) I come in and I'm just like, coffee, right? I would guess most of you don't even know the person's name who made the coffee for you. Do you know that uh, there's a a couple who's taught our kids every Sunday for nearly two years over in Sojourn Kids? And, And by taught, I mean like they dress up in costumes and they tell jokes and engage with our older kids, pleading with them to trust Jesus and follow him. Now, I guess most of you don't know their names or the amount of insane effort they're putting in to love our kids week after week. You know, there's a team of ladies that come over there to help organize. And like, we have a part-time person running a ministry that involves 200 people and 90 volunteers. It's insane. and And there's a group of ladies that come in to help out every week. And you don't know their names. You don't know who's cleaning over in their rooms. If you're here and you've got a kid and you've never served over in Sojourn Kids, there's almost 100 people. And it's not daycare that's happening over there. They're loving and investing in your kids, hoping that they'll know Jesus. And sometimes it's crazy, I'm sure. But that's what they're doing. It's not just dropping them off. And they're doing it, and most of us don't even know who they are. You know, there's a group of men and women that come to our church every Wednesday at 7 a.m. to pray to pray for missionaries, to pray for our local politicians, to pray for our church, that God would continue to use it and move it. And and this wasn't like some grand pastoral scheme. This was people seeking to be faithful to Jesus in ordinary, everyday rhythms of life. See, my point in saying all of this uh, is when knowing God is the goal, there is incredible joy, satisfaction, and meaning in just normal, everyday life. He's everywhere and he's present in all of it. When you see God in the ordinary, you'll be amazed that you'll find God in all of the ordinary places. You'll learn how he cares for you as you faithfully care for a little one, changing their diapers or doing the dishes for your family, that God is present in those things. You'll learn about God's faithfulness when you faithfully show up to a job that's difficult for you. You'll learn his patience and care for you as you listen to your neighbors. And friends, here's a verse that it just doesn't get, you've never seen a best-selling Christian book written based on this verse. And as far as I can tell, there's no conference that whatever pumps up this verse. And it'll be pretty obvious when it comes up here. Make it your goal to live a quiet life, minding your own business and working with your hands. Leave that up for just a second. The only way that that is a satisfying, meaningful life, as if the presence of God is found in our ordinary, quiet, working-with-our-hands life. If we can see that all of life is lived before God, we will see God is all around us, and everything is an opportunity to know him and be known by him. And so like Jesus, something great may happen. We may keep having years like we've had the last several years here as a church with growth and new life, And that'll be great, and we can remember that and rejoice in that, but regardless of the season, regardless of the time, all of life brings with it the opportunity to know God and be known by him. And so over the next two weeks, we're gonna explore what does that look like? Uh, What would it mean if we were a church that was less trying to do great things for God and expect great things from God, and more so, we were a church that did faithful things with God and rested in God's faithfulness to us. See, all of life, Is an opportunity to know him and be known by him. What are the rhythms of pursuing God in the ordinary life that he's given us? And it's no coincidence. We we see this reality in the way that God has given us to ground ourselves in him, to remember him, to refocus, recenter ourselves in the realities of the gospel. Uh, We see this in the Lord's Supper. Uh, So Jesus takes a loaf of bread and When was the last time you saw a loaf of bread? I saw a loaf of bread this morning. I would guess most of us see a loaf of bread or some derivative of it every day. Jesus takes perhaps the most ordinary source of food in human history and totally uh, transforms its meaning for us. He says, when you see this bread, I want you to remember how I broke it because it's my body broken for you as you eat it, remember what I've done for you. Not in some flashy, super spiritual commitment where we're going to fly across the country and change the world. Jesus says, the simple food you eat every day, as you eat it, remember my body broken for you. After the meal, he took a cup of wine and he said, when you drink this wine, remember my blood shed for you, which seals your relationship with God. Uh, They drink wine every day in that culture. Uh, So if you don't like wine or you're Whatever, you think we shouldn't drink any wine? What do you drink every day? Look at that and say, this is what makes me safe with God. It's the blood of Christ that's been shed for me. It's not our great works. It's not our extravagant plans. It's not our high, intense, emotional decisions that we made. It's the blood of Christ shed for us, which means that we're safe with God, and he's present in all of our ordinary life. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I just want to encourage you that that hunger you're longing for was that that hunger in your soul, rather, was put there by God, uh, and you were made for God. Uh, You can keep trying to get more. I'm just going to tell you, it won't work. Uh, That's why you see our society doing the things it's doing. It's always got to be a little bit more extreme. It's always got to be a little bit more intense. We've got to push the envelope a little bit farther, whether that's sexually, whether that's relationally, whether that's financially. And the Christian stands here, I stand here and say, what we all fear to be true... Or no, it's true. Nothing is ever enough because you were made for God. Maybe if it just had a little bit more money. A recent study came out that said, this is maybe a year ago, uh, it said, uh, once you start making $70,000 a year, any money over that won't make you any happier. So if you're dreaming of a financial target to hit, happiness is maximized at $70,000 a year. If you're making more than that, you've, you've already exceeded the amount of happiness money can give you point is, nothing in this world will be enough for you until you turn your heart to God, uh, because he's the only one who can satisfy that deep, infinite longing that he's placed in your soul. So for you, if that's where you are, your invitation is to come to Jesus, taste and see that he's good, that he cares for you, that he loves you, and learn to walk in relationship with him. If you're here and you're a Christian. Let's learn how to live in this tension of thanking God for all he's done, but keeping our eyes focused on knowing him and being known by him. And so we come to communion to ground ourselves in that reality, that the the ultimate gift of Christ's sacrifice is that we get relationship with God. So, Lord, we praise you for what you've done, and we're grateful for it, and we want to see your kingdom advance, but we want you more than any of that. Our tradition at Sojourn is to come forward, and you can rip off a piece of bread, dip it in wine or juice, A wine, will have a piece of twine wrapped around it. And uh, we'll have communion stations in the back and a gluten-free station to my left, your right. So I'll pray for us. And then Christians, you can come forward as you're ready. Let's pray.